where we're going is not kind of the wild west where we are today, but these will be technologies that fuel all of our businesses in every sector. And so if you can be ahead of the curve from a knowledge perspective and staying with a keen eye on Europe and a keen eye here on the regulatory and litigation movements in the U.S., you're going to be far ahead of your competitors, and hopefully you don't have to make radical changes when these things come to pass. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I am really excited to welcome Megan Gaffney to the show today. Megan, I would love if you would give a little intro of yourself and your work. You have a fascinating story. I can't wait to dive in and learn more. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks so much for asking me to join today. My background is a little bit different. As So I'm the founder and CEO at Beta Data Solutions. We are a healthcare AI company that focuses on the data automation that really connects provider organizations, so doctors, hospitals, et cetera, to the health plan so that patients like you and me can get access to care quickly, get claims paid accurately, and hopefully help our quality of life. My background is interesting because I didn't start in healthcare and I really didn't intend to found a company at all, I just got really frustrated. And I had been working on the Hill in the policy space as the ACA was being created. And I was also a young mom at the time. And policymakers, legislators were really dreaming up the future of what healthcare could look like if it was serving us all better. But at the same time, ignoring some of the infrastructure issues that seemed like simple wins. As a mom, I was trying to make appointments with specialists for my new baby and couldn't find a doctor accepting new patients. And it felt to me like these problems are the ones that were most impactful, these simple access to care issues, but nobody was focused on solving them. And through complaining very loudly in my office one day, full with other political consultants, I got a tap on the shoulder and an introduction from a friend to a scientist at the University of Wisconsin. He was an astronomer. And he had built AI and machine learning tools to help with data analysis in radio astronomy. And that introduction really led to some conversations about what we could do with the tools available that were being built in academic science to really make healthcare work better for people. And fast forward to now, that's where Veda is today. And you were talking about AI and big data and machine learning before everybody else caught on that that's a thing. And I was also in that space. So I did it in FinTech or just different areas. And there's so much to those stories. Like the stories of data are not all magnificent things that just came from the machines tied together and and Skynet now managing our lives for us. And I like to get into the real stuff of that because there's so much, particularly now in the the zeitgeist about all AI is a thing all of a sudden. And you're kind of like, well, it kind of was before, but (laughs) people are open to talking about it now. When we founded the company, it was before COVID and it was really scary for anybody in healthcare to talk about supervised learning as an answer to even administrative problems. And what we found out was that COVID was really a catalyst for some openness to AI in the healthcare space to say, okay, we've got more data flowing than ever before. We weren't prepared for it. 
didn't have an infrastructure that was prepared for the amount of information that was flowing between the patient, their doctor, their health plan. And they were open to new ways to solve that problem. I think without COVID, the openness to AI and machine learning, at least in our space, would have looked very different. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I talk to people a lot about that in the post-pandemic sort of reckoning that some industries, dare we say, benefited from, right? And I think that's always a tough conversation because you don't want to celebrate things that cost people tons of jobs and all kinds of, of headaches and God forbid death and all these things. But if anything, we all learned that, and I think this is the pertinent leadership topic is change comes out of nowhere and it happens faster and getting in a spot where you can react to that in a constructive way is probably the biggest lesson that that everybody learned there. Yeah, I think that's right. And I really look at my role as a founder as not only being thinking about the future and an imaginative leader, but also trying to set a pathway where AI and machine learning can be used to really benefit people. In our space, if you think about, you've probably had this experience before, you change jobs, you get a new health insurance plan, you need to go and find somebody that can help you with your diabetes care or your ongoing cardiology needs. When the data isn't moving fast enough to keep up with reality, it can actually keep the patient from being able to get care quickly. And what we see is in cases where you're dealing with chronic disease or with mental health, which is particularly impactful right now, the closer you can get a patient to getting care from the moment they start looking, the faster you can get them in front of a right provider that is accepting patients that can see them quickly, you can save lives, you can reduce costs, you can benefit health outcomes and keep people healthier and more productive in their communities. I don't think that's usually what people think of when they think about AI and machine learning. And so if you focus the technology at the right problems with the right risk profile, you can actually do pretty impactful things. It's when people try to solve every problem with the same tool that you really get into a messy situation. Right. And I think folks who were thinking about big data and solving the initial problems, which were really like, if you could boil big data down, at least from my experience in, in several different industries, although I've run from healthcare in every opportunity I could get. So I've never worked in healthcare, but I remember distinctly this idea of big data was like, we know how to put tons of data into systems. We don't know how to get it out in any meaningful fashion and actually do something constructive with it. And in fact, that data ingestion piece was absolutely the worst because you just go, great, like we stored it all, but in essence, like it wasn't cataloged, tagged in any kind of meaningful way. We can now just be dumber because we have lots of data, but we can't, don't have lots of right. knowledge. Yeah. Healthcare is very much like that. It still is an industry, has a lot of data ingestion and kind of ETL being done by hand. You've got, we call it the stare and compare problem, where you have people in one place staring at a screen, and then they are looking at another screen to their right and hand keying data from one to the other. It is scary to say, okay, in the healthcare space, we're going to take that human out and let a machine do the work. But what people hadn't measured before was what is the error and the downstream outcomes that happen from having a person there in the first place? 
And what we realized is that once you could help people measure that from a business leader perspective, if we went into the senior executive suite of a health plan, we said, let's measure how well this is working for patients today before we try to change it. And then we measure what happens when you change the system to something more automated and let those people do the work that really humans do the best, right? Care coordination, being able to really look into creating the right provider networks and getting rich information from these individual physicians, not figuring out who's accepting patients or what their phone number is. Really add that automated layer in, they were able to see not only does it get faster and cheaper, it also provides a better answer. And that measurement piece, I think, goes underappreciated in the B2B sales process and also just in companies that are looking to make changes and find automation opportunities. Thinking about measuring the current state first isn't where a lot of people start, but it's something that's extremely valuable. Yeah, that's a great point because I think everybody, everybody probably in almost every organization knows they have a data hygiene and transfer sort of problem, but it's an easy problem to not follow up on because it's so overwhelming that uh, you're right, that measurement thing would be important. And then I think there's really good metaphors in healthcare, like you can walk around looking healthy and, and be on the verge of death because you don't know that you have whatever internal problem. And that, if you can trans, and this goes for any business problem, right? If you can translate current state into high risk, bad outcome and high probability of bad outcome, you have a much better selling proposition. It must also be, it must be good to be able to say, well, our selling proposition is also that people don't die. A lot of companies can't say that. Yeah. And I think about it this way too, right? We use the word diagnostic in our sales process. First thing that we do in a pre-sales engagement with a customer is we do a data diagnostic where we take a look at the overall health of their internal data systems. And we diagnose, here's where your problems are. Here's where you have the most missing information or data that's not standardized or information that's just flat out wrong because it's old and outdated. Here's your hierarchy, right, of what we want to tackle. And it's very similar to going to your primary care physician and getting a checkup where they might say, hey, Megan, your glasses need a new prescription, but you're doing fine. So we're not going to worry about that right now. But it turns out your blood pressure is severe. Let's focus on getting you on some medication to fix this most severe problem, and then we'll work from there. And so we look at data from that same perspective of diagnose, treat the most significant things first, and then measure the outcomes again. Whatever you t- diagnosis you did on the front end, you need to keep doing it over time to be able to measure what that ROI looks like. And I think that process is really translated or able to be translated to just about any data business, whether it's healthcare or financial services or consumer transactions, the measure, treat, measure formula is pretty universal. And I'm going to venture that you potentially brought that along from your unique background in politics, because as a program manager and policy advisor, you can't do things without at least having some kind of baseline measurement. Now, granted, you probably wish it went a little faster in the political sphere as well, but I think that mindset might be from that experience that feels natural to you. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, I think when people are looking at making 
responsible change, you have to be able to explain it to someone that isn't in the weeds. And in the political space, you're talking to constituents and people who are working all day at another job and they're not in the weeds of whatever issue you're trying to explain. You need to make it very tangible. What is the benefit? What is the problem? And how do we quantify both of those things? And you're reporting back to those constituents frequently. The how to do it really came from my co-founder, Bob, having, and we have a team of former academic scientists, most of them physicists, weirdly, but also former genetic researchers, all who were post-PhD level scientists, and they're really good at this from an operational perspective. And so this is my, now I guess that because it's on a podcast, not so secret tip, if you need really great analysts or data analysts to put frameworks around measurement inside your company, look to former academic scientists because their work has to be replicated and they stand on stages and present their research in front of a room full of people who ask really tough questions. And there's no better preparation for a customer grilling you about your methodology than having lived through that in your past career. That's my shout out to higher former scientists. Yeah. Awesome. And that stakeholder management and broad empathy for different types of viewpoints and all those things, like you're checking the boxes there on the, you know, kind of list of stuff CEOs are supposed to do these days to be holistic in that way. And I'm so curious because you called yourself a political entrepreneur prior to this adventure, working on the Hill and all that stuff there. It's probably perspectives that come along for the ride, but like, how about those skills? Because I think a lot of people maybe don't get to develop that. And let's face it, politics is a dirty word. And oh God, she worked in politics. Was that hard at the beginning? Because the go to market is a whole other kind of issue. So I, gosh, I would love to know about that transition because I don't meet virtually anybody that does that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I will say two things, right? I think there is something innate in entrepreneurs that whatever field you choose, you're going to be creative and create something wherever you start. And so I have that thing, whatever it is. But politics really taught me three big lessons. The first was that you have to meet people where they are. We have to meet our customers emotionally where they are. We had to meet voters in my past life emotionally where they are and really actively listen to people if you want them to trust you. Some people do it really well. I think when I started working in that business in 2000, it looked very different than it does today. There's a reason why I transitioned out of my past career. But what I found was that- Wait, politics is different now? What? I mean, who knew? But there's a radical power to somebody feeling heard whether it's a voter or a customer, they feel that you're trying to understand their problem and you're really listening to them, you can go so much faster towards a shared goal. The second thing that I learned was just like this gritty work ethic. We didn't have nine to five hours, right? Campaigns were up and down. And when I was out on the road traveling with members of Congress, I was out with them at breakfast at 7 a.m. and meeting them at a town hall meeting until 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. And so I learned how to fit my life in where it fit. It wasn't really work-life balance. It was a work-life set of compromises all the time, right? How do I build a family? How do I connect with my friends and have this really high-pressure job? I got to practice that in my 20s, right? Before I was in charge, 
on how to create that balance. So it didn't feel like a huge shift when I founded a tech company. That give and take had always been my life, which was helpful. And the third and my probably biggest lesson from the political space that I carry forward to what I do today is I used to ask all of my clients, my consulting clients, and I worked primarily in the House of Representatives, one question before I would take them as a client was, what are you willing to lose your seat for? Like, What is the thing morally or ethically that you feel most passionate about? And I ask myself that, that same question frequently. Like, what is, what would you be willing to say no to? Who are you willing to say no to build this business the way you want to? And for me, we say it all the time inside the company that we build technology that helps people help people. It's our tagline. We will build things that serve patients well, that help them get healthy and stay well, get the right kind of care. But we're not going to take steps where it would be good for us as a business or good for revenue and hurt patients down the line. And so when you have that kind of clarity about what you're here to do and the lines in which you operate, it just helps make decisions. It makes decision-making much easier, whether it's products or investors that we would work with or the right partners in a customer sense, all of those decisions get easier. So that political clarity that I had in the past that I helped others gain has really served the business, I think, as we've grown over the years. Yeah, that's interesting because you described it as consulting, right? And I think that consultants sometimes get a bad rap. I've been one and uh, I am one, I guess. And the idea that sort of you get to talk at this high level, but somebody else does all the work. That's obviously not the case, but I resonate with that idea that you can essentially create those guardrails, you know, based on kind of core values there. And you also know, like, I mean, I don't think there are a lot of people that show up and go, you know, I'm going to make all the money I can and intentionally ruin somebody's life. Now, there probably are. They happen to be all over TikTok, though, is the problem in the AI space. (laughs) (laughs) We will definitely avoid TikTok. I agree wholeheartedly. Maybe that's my age speaking, but hell no. So I think that value-based decision-making where it provides the boundaries around what do we do and not do, or at least how do we measure, again, that, that measurement of does it qualify for the mission or vision that we're trying to do, and the ability then to communicate that to all the stakeholders makes a huge difference. So it's okay if kids come around. <laughs> we should talk about parenting. And you've got your politics helping with business. And how does parenting help with business? Let's just go right yeah. there because I have strong Whether I ask for it or not, I kids are a great window into your own ability to have a sense of humor. It is easy to be like, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm feeling great about all my choices. I'm looking great. I'm going to go speak at this conference and not very be very reflective on where you can continuously improve yourself. And I think kids point that out. I would say the other thing is being a parent, it has made me a better employer because, sorry, we're making sure something doesn't explode in the microwave right now, is I am more understanding of my employees' lives and making sure that beta is a great place to work that allows people to be flexible and balance their life. If I didn't have that life experience, I'm not sure I would be as focused on giving people space to both do their best work 
and exist as full people. And we've been able to attract a really diverse group of employees who have all different challenges in their life, not just parents, people that are taking care of their own parents, right? Folks that are have had health challenges of their own and they're getting back into the workforce. And I think I'm more open to figuring out how to support people based on my own experience as a mom. Yeah, absolutely. I completely relate. They will, they'll take it out of you and make you think for sure. When I get in the the car after school, we go over our day and they ask me, did you close any deals today? It's been a while. Yeah, I say it's been a rough summer, but I I got a text from uh, one of my stepdaughters this weekend. They did a lemonade stand. We live right down the street from Camp Randall uh, Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin. And so uh, the football traffic is uh, massive. And I got a picture of the lemonade stand and the caption was lemonade is for closers. And so I feel like my work here is done. (laughs) Yes. Fantastic. That is excellent. I'm going to use that one. So that totally diverse collection of things led to your leadership style and your experience. And yet it's still, it's pretty rare to walk into and your first sort of startup and then go, Hey, I'm going to work with scientists and I'm going to solve data problems and I'm going to raise tens of millions of dollars. And what didn't translate? What were the surprises, the lessons learned? Oh man, let's not do that again. How much time do we have? Like we could be here all day. Look, like I think the investment that it takes in a B2B sales cycle in healthcare, a 12-month sales cycle, and the investment and the cultivation of those customer relationships, I was probably naive and Pollyannish. We had a great solution, and I didn't understand the process and the red tape it would take to break through, to get to those first most monumental deals that allowed us to build and create momentum. Very brief story about this, but I think it's true for a lot of tech founders. We were in the 2017, 2018 space where Silicon Valley is on HBO, everything in the news. It's like, it's so easy to raise money. And if you have a great solution that solves a problem, it's just going to happen. Or even if you don't, somebody's just going to write you a check. Sometimes more so if you don't. And if you don't tell anybody about any of the flaws in your system, and we were just completely underprepared for how challenging this initial sales process would be. So we went to a hackathon that was sponsored by Humana, and we had never touched provider data before. We had never seen any hospital data. This is like our first chance to get our hands on it. And we won. And we were so excited. We had met with executives and they were going to bring us in and we were going to do this big proof of concept. And there was a moment where we're like going into contracting with this Fortune 50 company and feeling like we have solved everything, right? Our business is just going to jump off and be easy from here. And then we got to the security assessment because it's healthcare. And we didn't think about the fact they were asking for physical security policies and procedures. And Bob called me and was like, it's my actual house. Like, I know if people come in here that don't live in my house, I was like, we can't write that down. Oh, that can't be the answer. What are we going to do? And so we had to pause and go slower and get investment to put some of these infrastructure pieces in place before. Yeah. Because this is pre-cloud too. And even if it was post-cloud, nobody wanted to go health. Oh my God, healthcare wasn't on the cloud. We were on AWS 
My business partner is doing this from his basement. We have three employees and we have a Fortune 50 company that's, yes, we want to buy this. And their procurement and compliance offices were like, full stop, absolutely not. What's interesting is that has taken until this year. We are now in an enterprise agreement with that health plan again. But it took us years of investment. And we worked with other large health plans along the way as we've built our infrastructure. But we were unaware of all of this kind of red tape of working with a company that large and hadn't planned for it, hadn't planned to raise the money for it. And so the early few years, year like one to beginning of year three, were tough. We were scrapping for every payroll. Yeah, I I do education for founders around, I call it big logo deals, right? Like you have to change your whole company. And the interesting thing is that people focus so much on, oh, my sales cycle and I could get in front of the right people and all these things. Like it's like maybe 10% of getting an actual contract out of a big company like that. And it's actually the easy part. The, once you get handed one of those security assessments and the 65 page MSA written in nine point font, and it's so hard, like getting a verbal means nothing out of a big company like that. Yeah. And it's the adrenaline rush that you're like, yes. And then figuring out all of the other pieces is challenging. I think my advice for that is twofold. One is get a really great lawyer. And one that doesn't care if they're paid on time in the early years. We got very lucky. Our general counsel was actually the same attorney who did our LLC paperwork. She ended up leaving her firm about a year and a half ago to come on full-time with us. And it was the only way that we kept going because she had done corporate work and had really understood how to navigate through that procurement nightmare and was also the one that sat us down and said, we actually need to slow down and get HIPAA compliant very quickly. And we did. And we checked all of those security boxes. And now we're pretty proud of our security culture. But I didn't know any of that because I was a, from a different industry, from a different background. And so disruptors are amazing coming from other industries because you can see problems in ways that the insiders can't. And you can solve them in ways that they could never imagine. But you need enough folks around to help with the regulatory and the infrastructure. Healthcare is by far the worst because of PII and, and all the things. But I, I can tell you that having never touched healthcare, this is exactly what it's like even being a marketing agency. And they'll make you go through all these security assessments. You're like, what? I don't even know what that means. You know? <laughs> like, do you have this three-letter acronym? Actually, I don't know. Sure, I wear socks right. every day. Yeah, it's challenging. And now what we're seeing in the market, which is, I think important for businesses of all sizes, but really having policies and a thought process and and structure around how you use AI, how you use generative AI. We've been ahead of that curve because we've been thinking about it the entire genesis of our company and our CISO and general counsel have just been far out ahead of where I think the business community at large is, but we're seeing it coming from healthcare companies with every contract now. What is your generative AI policy? Will you sign an AI ethics agreement? How are you testing for bias? And it's going out with every deal that touches data. And so I think that's something on the horizon for people to look forward to for like future 
speed bumps that are coming for companies now. We've seen that change in the last three to four months. It's really moving fast. Yeah, people are probably rightfully terrified. Like basically, are you going to feed all this into the machine that they really don't understand? What are you training on this? Or what about my copyrights and personal data? It's just you knew that ultimately this groundswell would happen and somebody would just turn it on without really ever fully thinking about it. And that's exactly what happened. And these are amazing, wonderful technologies that are going to enable a lot of good things. And they're also wildly powerful and not fully understood. <laughs> exactly. And from my perspective, I think the I've really talked about two things publicly. One is I think there is an ethical obligation in the tech community for disclosure. You're interacting or your system is based on generative AI. You need to, people need to know it. Consumers need to know it. They need to be, it needs to be prominently disclosed. You're talking with a chat back and forth with your healthcare provider. Can you even imagine? Like people need to know and they have a good sense of healthy skepticism, I think, from a consumer perspective, but also, just needing to understand and have testing and documentation and research about the outcomes of what you're doing before you let this stuff loose into the public domain and particularly in decision making in the healthcare industry. There's not enough rigor as it is in anything that's non-clinical if the FDA isn't regulating it. There's been a lot of companies that come up really quickly and then fizzle out because there's not enough testing and rigor around the outcomes. And so I am just a big proponent of go slow, test, frequently engage experts and very slowly and methodically move into this nascent technology in a way that is fully disclosed to both your customers and to patients at large, because that's the only way to build trust in a new technology is to just be very open with people and upfront about when you're using it and what those outcomes look like. And would you say that in general, you want companies to think about disclosure of everywhere you use it as far as anywhere in your stack or primarily just related to when it comes to touching a customer? Yeah, I think right now, I think we got to be cautious, right? Because where it sits in your stack, you can have unexpected outcomes. In my, you know, the framework of how we think about it is if we were not willing to talk to our customers about it, we shouldn't be doing it. I'm not sure we advertise like, every piece of our internal technical infrastructure on our website, but we certainly would talk about anything that's built into our systems with our customers, with their security teams. It's not giving away your secret sauce, but being feeling confident enough that you've made the right technology choices from a security and a privacy perspective that you're willing to talk to your customers is a pretty clear baseline, I think, to judge. Am I doing something too risky? Would I be willing to tell my customers CISO? that this is built into my system. And if you're not, it bears some internal questions within your own company leadership about why we're making that choice and why right now. Yeah, there's probably a lot of people that don't even know what a CISO is. The chief information security officer is if you are selling any type of thing to a large company that is in any way related to technology, which is now in fact, Pretty everything. much everything. <laughs> yeah. You were going to run into these security audits and it's one of the biggest hurdles to get over. And if, if you ever thought you got a bad test or quiz in school, 
you can't possibly imagine what these forms look like. On the flip side of the scary CISO is if you do information security and you get ahead, you can move so much faster than your competitors to close deals. And so if you think about it and invest in it early enough to get ahead of this, we've found we can, you can actually control your sales cycles a little bit, your time to close. Like you can measure that. We've given our internal security team that as a KPI. We're going to measure how much faster we can close a contract and get to signature when we make this investment in your team. So help us go faster. Fantastic. Yeah. I love that. I hope everybody really marinates on that one. Lemonade is for security closers too. Right. And it gives your teams, like when you have to sit through security trainings and stuff, when you broadcast to the whole company, listen, sales team that doesn't want to do this security training, not to pick on salespeople, but we all know that regimented training is not actually. We don't want to do any training or write anything down or. But, like yeah. Hey, they're going to help you get a signature on your contract three weeks faster than in the past. All of a sudden they're like, fine, I'll do it. That sounds because I'm going to get my commission faster. I'm going to reach my quota faster. They see them as a partner. And so I think there's some, again, industry agnostic advantage if you give non-revenue parts of the company like security or revenue KPI aligns everybody towards the right goal. Oh, brilliant. I love it. I am a huge advocate of what I would call a revenue first mindset. And that is not what we've all been trained as like money hungry or profit over people or any of these things. I really think that it's just simply the gas in the car and you can't do things without money. And if we all want to talk about missions and visions and broad, amazing things that we're going to do to change the world. If you don't put gas in the car, you don't get to do that. And I think that's like absolutely the most important lesson for a startup. Yes. And this idea that somehow revenue generating and doing good things in the world are somehow diametrically opposed or at odds with one another, I think was just a cheap cop out for people that made bad choices, right? Because they could say, I did these things that were terrible for my employees and they were terrible for my community, but we did it because of revenue. And it's just, you weren't creative enough to reach those same revenue goals in a way that wasn't damaging. But in my mind, set the revenue bar high, set the objectives and what you want to achieve for your employees and your community high. And then you aim to hit both. Why take the easy way out? Right. And then obviously that comes with a tolerance for failure and learning and just massive. You, you try to mitigate the sort of impact of the mistakes, but it doesn't mean the mistake is smaller from a financial perspective. Every order of magnitude you grow is basically an order of magnitude more expensive for the mistakes that you make that are right. tolerable. And you hopefully make mistakes that impact you and not your customer. At the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. You have to fall down on the grenade a little bit there too. Is yeah. <laughs> right. It's like a leader. <laughs> I just live on the grenade, but it's fine. It's <laughs> so you talked about strong opinions in your mm -hmm. profiles online. Yeah. And I just wondered what some of those strong opinions are. Well, there's a lot to go into here. <laughs> there are two things that I care about passionately, right? It's AI and it's use to help people. I am a believer, like I just said, that you can use new technology, you can innovate, you can create revenue and jobs and do it in a way that doesn't harm people. It's just harder. 
And so I'm a big believer in holding technology leaders to the highest standard of ensuring that we're building things that customers want, that serve great purpose in our community and support our business all at the same time. And I think when we allow technology leaders to become very prominent that don't live up to that standard, we all hurt ourselves, right? Like we can elevate better voices in AI and machine learning than we are today. Did, I don't wanna... did you get banned on Twitter yet for posting things like that? I'm just curious. Well, I've moved a little bit away from Twitter, honestly. Like once we changed <laughs> to X, it got a little too Gen Z for me. But I don't know. I just, I see founders every day who are building incredible things who deserve the recognition and the limelight, but we're allowing people who are not living up to that standard to take all of the air in the room about what AI and machine learning means for our economies and our community. And the second is I'm a woman, I'm an AI founder. There aren't a lot of us. There are even fewer who, after you get substantial amounts of venture capital, get to keep their job as CEO. I watch it happen and I've been pretty outspoken in every room that I'm in when all of the data behind a decision that I'm making or a path I'm taking says it's the right one and it feels risky to someone, I will say to them very clearly, that's bias. That's what it feels like. It's a risk, risky feeling you can't explain with data. And so I spend time talking about that because the data that we see out of Harvard Business School and consistently in the exit valuations of companies that were founded and led by women is they are more profitable, they exit faster, and they exit at higher valuations. The initial ability to enter into this world of funded startups, there's an artificial barrier there. And I don't think we get over it by just trying to act as much as we can like our male counterparts. I talk a lot about what is sometimes called being empathetic or leading with emotion is actually my ability to have less ego in a room with my customer. I can hear them more clearly because my ego isn't screaming in the back of my head the entire time. And my customers realize that. And so they're willing to trust me with more revenue and more responsibility than they would some of my counterparts. And I challenge people, if you feel that risky feeling, either as a business leader or an investor, when you're going to hire someone or when you're working with a woman inside your company or outside of your company, and you look at the data and the data doesn't show you risk, but you're feeling it, to just remind yourself that might be bias. That's where the bias lives. And so if I'm outspoken about that, it's because I think that the more we talk about it, I don't think it's intentional, but I think it it lives in us from everything we've experienced in the world that we live in. And when I was growing up, it's just different. There weren't a lot of leaders like me. And so the more we can put a label on those situations in individual decision-making scenarios that doesn't feel so heavy, people can become more conscious of how they make choices and hopefully open up that pathway for more and more women to lead businesses and stay in the CEO seat as long as they're achieving the metrics, right, that investors and employees expect them to achieve. Yeah, I really like that idea of being able to understand the the line there between data-driven decision-making and that feeling of risk. And all of the mental health literature would tell you 
the real area of wisdom or growth or actualization is the space between the feeling and the reaction to it and, and being able to stop there. And so woman or man or whoever, if we can get that message across, right. I think that's amazing. Just stop and be thoughtful. It's a little bit of mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah. And that gets the old hippie crunchy stamp and nobody wants to talk about that. But I think as leaders, you need to make that space because if you're just going through the day, checking the boxes, you aren't in fact, actually working on the future state at all. Well, and it's a growth mindset as a leader. If you only trust your gut or you trust your gut above the data, you don't have any space to grow in your own ability to make choices and make decisions better. But when you're constantly saying, okay, let me make data-driven choices, I'm going to be mindful of what my gut is saying and maybe listen to it, but you're able to operate in a space where you can change your mind with new information. And that's the kind of growth mindset we want to cultivate inside our company from leaders. And so being able to do that at the highest executive level, you're demonstrating the kind of growth mindset that you expect to see within the organization. And that's one of the things that our chief people officer, Sne Patel, says all the time is the unique defining characteristic of leaders at Theta is the ability to change their mind with new information. And I couldn't be any prouder of anything than that, is cultivating that culture. I, I think, I don't know if it's Facebook or somebody over there, Meta or something is credited with, or at least talking about strong opinions loosely held. You know, I'll defend this to the death until you prove me wrong and then I don't care anymore. That's a radical way of operating, strangely, in the world. Again, plug for the scientists always being in the room because that's ingrained in them. And it's nice to have them in a conversation, even at a deal desk. Actually, we've tried that pricing model and it's not working. We met, perhaps we should shift our thinking here because the data says that what you're proposing isn't working. And so when you get that mindset within a company, it allows the business to operate in a new way. I can only imagine the, the sales, the career long sales people going absolutely ballistic during that conversation, but. I don't know. I, maybe I'm ruined for sales teams, but I find that they've, takes them a little while to get used to having scientists in the room all the time, but they, it's a great compliment. They become great tag team partners of relationships and data working together, each doing their best thing side by side. Go watch Moneyball. That'd be a great, great tool to talk about that mindset, you know, where you have And to all like, of them like to play poker, which is also. Liar Poker is another great book for that. Yeah. Fantastic. Before we have to go, I always like to give space for, okay, what's, and you may have talked about this already. And I think it has something to do with that AI conversation, which is huge, but you're a leader of a B2B company. The audience is leaders of B2B companies. What's on your unique radar and perspective that everybody should have on theirs and they probably don't know? I think that regulation is coming for generative AI. Mm. And I think two, one word of caution of things to work out for and one tip to stay ahead of the curve before we close. The caution of things to watch out for is the training data that fuels engines like ChatGPT and other large language models. There will be at some point a reckoning where the folks who created that training data would like access to compensation for it. Whether that comes through 
legislation or litigation, it's coming. And when that happens, the performance of models that you might build your businesses on could radically change. And so keeping that in mind as like the pitfall to watch out for, because it is very hard to swap out the training data for a model and you will not know how it's going to perform with new training data or big changes in the training data. And if litigation tells you you need to pull it out, you're deleting the whole thing because we don't know how right. to pull it out. If you are using a vendor, they might not tell you when they have to make that change. So having an eye towards the news and the, the news that are covering the litigation and the regulation around LLMs and generative AI is going to be important as a business leader, especially if you're using these tools. The second thing is I am a legislative nerd, as my past would have you believe. And I'm watching what's happening in Europe around AI regulation. And I think it's going to look like GDPR, where the US is a little bit behind. And then we look at what happens in Europe, and we're going to react and base the framework around Europe. If you want to stay ahead of where the regulation is going, watch European Parliament, take cues from the EU, and you're going to be able to stay ahead, I think, where we go in the U.S. And so where we're going is not the Wild West where we are today, but these will be technologies that fuel all of our businesses in every sector. And so if you can be ahead of the curve from a knowledge perspective and staying with a keen eye on Europe and a keen eye here on the regulatory and litigation movements in the U.S., you're going to be far ahead of your competitors. And hopefully you don't have to make radical changes when these things come to pass. Oh, fantastic. That was brilliant. I love that so much. That's a snippet right there. We're going to get some good mileage out of that one. Megan, oh, great conversation. You know, thank you so much for taking time from kids. And if it smells like fire in your house, it probably is the microwave. My dear son put a bag of popcorn in for four and a half minutes couple weeks ago and it still stinks in here. Teenagers, so, man. Bless you and all you do and the balance. And thank you for your time because I know that it's valuable for people who are resonating, hearing this and want to maybe get in touch with you or what are the channels that you can be best reached on? Our website, first and foremost, it's Veda, V-E-D-A, data.com. So vedadata.com. Or you can find me on uh, LinkedIn if you search Megan Gaffney Veda. It's really easy. I should be the first person that pops up. Feel free to send me a message through either channel and really appreciate the conversation. This was great. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Thank you.